name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to this latest Talking Bat and I am so pleased today and honoured today to be joined with, uh, or joined by rather, Dr Sandy Sowler, someone who I have known for quite some time now. Uh, Sandy, how are you doing? Very, very well, thank you, on this beautiful spring-like day. Excellent, excellent. And you're in Devon at the moment, is that right? You've got a... Yes, in South Devon, we have a a holiday house that we also let. Um, It's near Sulcombe. Wow, wow. And I know that prior to that, you had a second home in South Africa, and we're going to talk a lot about South Africa, I'm sure, over the next hour or so. Um, But uh, I'm right in saying you're not going to South Africa as often as you used to, is that correct? We sold our house there in 2019, uh, fortunately, just before the start of uh, the uh, pandemic. Okay, okay, so so good timing. Well, are you looking forward to doing this? Because uh, I asked you some months ago, and you said you were up for it, and uh, and here we are at last. <laughs> How are you feeling? Are you feeling are you feeling apprehensive, or are you feeling? Uh, I don't know. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Not apprehensive at all. Excellent. That's what I like to hear. That's what I like to hear. So first of all, I want to introduce uh, Sandy to you all. Uh, Sandy has been involved in bat research and conservation since 1969. And I think it is more than fair to say that she is hugely respected, not just in the United Kingdom, but internationally as an authority on many aspects of bat-related work. Now, uh, Sandy originally uh, studied in South Africa. We'll talk a little bit more about this shortly. And her PhD was on the reproduction and growth in South African, in a South African fruit bat, I believe, which I think was a bat called Angelica. Is that book uh, connected well, the, the, to the PhD? the species that I worked on, um, right was Epimophorus Walbergi, which is known uh, commonly as Walberg's epauletted fruit bat. Um, The book cover that you have depicted there, that I wrote some years after finishing my my PhD, which was taking some of the new information that I had discovered um, about breeding in this particular species of fruit bat and turning them into a children's story featuring a Epimophorus, a, a Wahlberg's epileptic fruit bat called Angelica. Well, well, and so apart from your PhD, would have this been the first batty type publication or the first book or anything like that that you would have ever done? Um, no, I had before that um, published a number of research papers. Um, both by myself and with colleagues relating to my research on this particular species of fruit bat. Wow, wow, that's amazing. Absolutely amazing stuff. Well, I've got to say, I'm, <coughs> I'm, almost, I'm almost embarrassed to say, Sandy, that despite the fact that we've known each other uh, some time, I didn't know about this book until I started doing some stalker 
type activity on you over the last couple of days. Oh my goodness. And, uh, and I found this and I thought, what's this? Why don't I know about this? <laughs> so, would you like me to send you a copy? If you've got a copy, that would be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had a number of copies, which I actually um, gave to Bats Without Borders. Um, and they were Ra uh, Rachel uh, Cooper Bohannon. Um, took them with her to Malawi and was distributing them there um, as a just a, a fun tool for kids. Okay, I, I would love a copy of that. And, uh, <laughs> and if you could sign it as well, that would be extra special. Oh, I can do that. <laughs> for you, Neil. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, good stuff. Right, but moving on, uh, 24 years experience in ecological consultancy work, uh, predominantly in the United Kingdom. Uh, an author and contributor on numerous research papers, articles, publications, books, and the like. Um, you were a member of the editorial board for a, what we commonly call in the British Isles, uh, Bat Survey Guidelines. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so I know you were heavily involved with that, uh, and you were heavily involved in John Ross's uh, second book on uh, British bat calls. I know that you provided lots of information for that. South African good practice guidelines for wind farm developments. Uh, up until quite recently, you were on the advisory board of Bats Without Borders and also a fellow of the Linnean Society. So out of all of that, go and just sort of cherry pick some stuff that was highlights, key moments, you know, you know, how do you feel looking at all of that? Seeing it on a screen is uh, <laughs> quite, quite daunting, quite frightening looking at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the thing I, is, I, 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 I I'm, I, I'm very proud of certain, certain elements of that that stand out in my mind. Um, th there are now many other editions of the South African Good Practice Guidelines, but... Um, I myself and a, and a colleague, we, we co-authored that. And I think we were the first people to draw to the attention um, of the um, various authorities that wind turbines could have disastrous effects on bats as well as obviously birds as well. Um, and they were at that point in time beginning to build an awful lot of, um, of turbines across um, Southern Africa. Um, I feel very proud that we wrote that at the time we did. It was at the beginning of it all. Um, and I think we drew a, a lot of attention initially to that. It's now been taken on much, much further and has been updated um, many, many times, but is still um, the basis of that is still important in, in the South African um, BAT survey ecological consultancy business in relation to um, undertaking impact assessments for for wind turbines. Yeah, yeah, and of course so that I I am very proud of, and I also am too of of the the first edition um, of the good practice guidelines for the UK good practice guidelines too. Yeah, yeah, I mean th th those good practice guidelines when uh, they came out the the first edition, which I remember well. Because uh, I was already, I already had Echo's Ecology at that point, uh, and as an ecological consultant doing bat work prior to two thousand and seven, we didn't really have 
that much to uh, latch on to in terms of uh, recognised or acceptable survey methods and the yeah, like. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and although those guidelines, um, you know, they, they, you know, they were the, the first attempt to try and pull of all of that stuff together. Um, it really was something that gave us all something that we could focus uh, around not yeah. necessarily always agree with, I suppose, but at least it gave us something that we could all uh, circumnavigate around and say, well, here's something that at least tells us what we think we're supposed to be doing. So, that, I mean, that was quite a key moment, I would have the thought. Key, the key thing for us in the development of those guidelines is that they were a beginning. And as time progressed, they were able to be changed, modified, updated, revised with the latest equipment that we had access to, new developing methodologies. So they were and are important because they're flexible and they, were, they weren't just written once and that was it. They were st stuck in stone after that. Um, it was the ability to revise them, um, which I think was exceptionally important. Yeah, yeah. And, and as we see here, uh, revised in 2012 and 2016, and about to be revised again. Yes. By, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but everything roots back to that original that original publication. <laughs> that was. Yeah. That, that, yeah. And in fact, I should make the comment that when myself and Samantha Stoffberg, who was my co-author for the South African Good Practice Guidelines, when we began that. I asked permission from BCT, who was developing the UK survey guidelines, if we could use the basics of that yeah. to develop the South African one. And we were given that permission to do so. So it also began the South African good practice guidelines as well. Yeah, no, abs abs absolutely. I was conscious of that. I had a, had a quick uh, look at the South African guidelines uh, <laughs> this week. And I actually, from memory, I'm sure it says on the front page of that 2012 document, I'm sure it makes reference to the BCT document. It does, uh, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. Did. Uh, it was Lisa Hunter, I think her name was, was the lady yes. who, who did the foundation skeleton for it and who I asked permission from. Yes, yes, absolutely. I remember Lisa, uh, she was on one of our training courses before she was in BCT. Uh, oh, yes. I remember her being a delegate on one of the ECHO's courses. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. But what I want to do, what I want to do, uh, I want to take things back a bit, okay? Uh, tell me, how did you, you were, you were brought up, you're from South Africa originally, I think that's correct. No, I'm not, no? I'm not. Okay, go, go, on, go, go and just give us your, your life history that takes you up <laughs> to doing the PhD. How did you end up in South Africa uh, how did you end up being interested in natural history and Ben Bats? You know, tell, tell us the story there. Yeah. Goodness me. 
well, I am going to take you back to when I was conceived. Okay. <laughs> I was actually conceived in um, West Africa, um, in what was then the Gold Coast and is now Ghana. My, my father was working in the Abosso gold mine um, and I was conceived there. My mother came back to the, and I was born in the UK, um, but then went back as a very young child to um, West Africa, where I lived for a small, for a number of years. Um, my mother herself was passionate about wildlife and I um, believe that it was her passion that seeped into me over all the years. Um, you may or may not know that because of my father's job, I lived abroad a great deal in my early, early life. Um, not only was the early years in West Africa, but also thereafter I lived um, when I was five and six and seven in the Argentine in, in Buenos Aires. Um, and I also developed a love of wildlife there through my mother taking me to many places in that area around Buenos Aires. Wow. Um, after that, I, um, when I was nine, um, I went to live in Iraq, in Baghdad, um, and my parents were, um, or I and my parents were caught up in the Ira Iraqi revolution of 1958. And so my mother and I had to flee from that. Um, when my father couldn't leave and was left there um, because he was involved in the oil refinery business. Okay. Um, so I suppose going forward to answer your question about how did I get involved in bats, I always had an interest in bats from as far back as I can remember. And I could relate a, an anecdote, something that I don't totally remember, but was told to me, I would probably be about 12 or 13, possibly 14, my parents used to take me to a place in North Devon on a farm. And I, not many years ago, met an old friend of my mother who used to run the farm or her, her children now run the farm. And she said, don't you remember, you used to sit outside the farm of, at dusk watching bats and being fascinated by them. And I said, no, I don't remember, but she obviously did. Um, going forward, I did my zoology degree in the University of Reading. <clears throat> and for my third degree, we were able to specialise in certain areas. And one of the areas I chose to specialise in was mammals, mammalogy. Another area was vertebrate paleontology, because part of my degree was also geology. Um, but the mammalogy section, we were allowed to select certain groups. And at that point, I selected Chiroptera. Um, and so that was in 1969. Um, I did part of my third year zoology degree um, on mammals in particular on Chiroptera. And I chose Chiroptera um, simply because in those days, if you, if you can think what was known about bats in 1969, there wasn't a lot. Yeah. And I did a lot of research in the library, the university library, trying to find out what I could. Okay. Not a lot. Yeah. And so we had um, a lecturer called Mr. Hardy. Okay. Hardy, Harding, Hardy. And his father had been the very famous zoologist. 
and he gave us all the lectures on bats in those days which was fascinating um so that was 69 i finished my first degree in 1970 and in 1974 I got married in 71 and became a secondary school teacher in the UK and taught biology in Coventry in Warwickshire. Ah. Then my then husband um, was working for a company called Courtauld's, which you've probably heard of. And um, he was offered uh, a really important uh, role in a, in a pulp mill in South Africa. So in 1974, I'd left my teaching and emigrated with him to what is now KwaZulu-Natal, was Natal in those days. Um, and he was working for a subsidiary of, of Courtauld's in a pulp mill. He was an industrial chemist. Um, and I continued my teaching uh, over there. I was teaching in highest what we would call secondary schools here, uh, higher schools over there, um, teaching biology and geography. I had been passionate about wanting to do research and I had an opportunity um, to start to do um, some research in the area KwaZulu-Natal that I was interested in, particularly wildlife research. Um, and I went to the University of Peter Maritzburg um, Durban and Peter Maritzburg are both parts of the University of KwaZulu-Natal um, to find out whether I could look at various research topics. And one of the research topics that I decided upon was to look at bats. Um, and my potential supervisor then was a Professor Waldo Meester who has now subsequently died. But he um, said, we know so little about the wildlife where you live. And I was living on the Natal South Coast, south of Durban, a place called Amkamas. And he said, why don't you find what you have in that area um, and see what might be a research topic? So I borrowed some mist nets um, and caught some fruit bats, and the fruit bats I caught were Epimophorus wolbergi. I did investigate other possible subject, uh, other species, but and subjects. But Epimophorus um, was caught in my in my mist net, and I then began to find out just what was known about Epimophorus wolbergi, the Wahlberg's epileted fruit bat, and there was practically nothing known. A bit of research had been done in Kenya. Um, in early 1970s and I thought this is a, a, a subject area and particularly as Epimophorus were believed to be a pest species because they would feed on on lychee plantations lychee lychee plantations um, and they would damage mango crops but little was known about their lives how they bred um, or anything at all and so I began um, under the supervision earlier of, in the early days of Professor Waldo Meester, um, research into this particular species. So I would catch them most nights. Um, 
and I would also, I had a captive colony of them, um, and I also looked at uh, tissue samples um, of testes, ovaries, which are histologically prepared, um, and wrote my PhD on reproduction and growth in that species. Wow, wow, yeah, that's it. So that, and that, at the same time, I was um, doing some work as a lecturer at the University of Natal, Durban. Um, my later supervisor became Professor John Hanks, who was very um, instrumental in how I progressed in later years, and I'm still in touch with him now. Okay, okay. wow, wow. He's a great con South African conservationist yeah. and friend, as we said, of um, Professor Paul Racy. <laughs> Yes, I know. Paul Racy was my yeah. was, was then um, asked if if he would be my examiner for my um, my thesis, which he was. Yeah, yeah. Wow, what a journey! What a what a journey! So it kind of uh, yeah, you you start more or less in uh, Africa, you end up in South America, the Middle East, and you end up back in a different part of Africa. Uh, at that yes. stage. Yeah. <laughs> Does that kind of answer your question? Oh yeah, and, and more and more. And it's just so fascinating to. I mean, there were little bits there that I knew about before, uh, but I hadn't quite, I hadn't quite threaded it. And there was a whole lot of bits there that I, I didn't know about, which is uh, fascinating stuff. Look, you, you were saying, and I want to mention it because you kind of, you kind of came at me with something uh, that I didn't know about when we we're talking just before we started the camera. <laughs> You were also saying that when you were in South Africa studying your PhD, that you were also attached to the South African Police Force as a diver. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, how, how, how does a biology teacher doing a PhD in South Africa, occasionally lecturing at the university, how do you get involved in becoming a police diver? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um... It's quite an, an easy answer to that question. Okay. I was working in the in the University of Natal, Durban, lecturing, as you know, and my office was there. Um, one of my colleagues um, was a police diver, and he was the captain of the reserve unit uh, for South African Police Diving Unit. And I was very, very keen to learn to just to learn to dive. Okay. I'd been doing quite a lot of marine biological work um, with the university. So, for example, um, I would help in student practicals, but I wanted to learn to dive. And um, Darren Smith was then the captain of the police, the South African Police Reserve Diving Unit. And I went to him and I said, would you teach me to dive? And he said, yes, but on one condition. Okay. I said, OK, what's the condition? He said that when I've taught you to dive, and if I think you're good enough, I would like to enroll you into the South African um, Durban um, Reserve Unit for, for diving, for um, police divers. And he said, um, you will be the second woman only ever in wow. South Africa to be a police diver. Okay. And I said, okay. <laughs> So I was pulled into it because he taught me to dive and he said that once I'd passed my exam, um, he wanted me to put myself forward um, as a police, a reserve police diver. Wow, wow. Okay. So I did. <laughs> yeah. And is that something that you then continued to do uh, 
and you know later on or do you still I, I did that? it for the time I lived in South Africa okay. um most of the time it was retrievals of bodies people who had died um mainly children I have to say mainly young adults children are young adults okay. occasionally we got involved in more um in areas outside that um for example I was once involved in recovering um a murder weapon um and I was also once recovered, once involved in recovering, or more, more than once involved in recover, recovering stolen, um, stolen weapons and um, uh, motorbikes and cars. Okay. Okay. Would this be in river systems or would this be offshore, I mean, or a combination? Um, no, we never did any um, marine work um, in terms of, of recoveries of anything. They were always in, in rivers. Um, or in dams, or in quarries, or in flooded quarries. Okay, okay. And any dangerous wildlife going about when you're doing that? Uh... Um, only Bilhazia. Okay, what's what's that? Yeah. Uh... Um, it, it, it's a small um, microscopic organism which will stick onto your skin and um, uh, give give you um, uh, a fairly serious illness. Um, okay. involving the um, the kidneys and, and bladder goodness okay so we used to we used to cover our our body with a almost like a liquid soap which stops the little saccharia of the bilharzia getting into your skin and gripping hold of you okay okay so but nothing have, else <laughs> that you don't have to worry about crocodiles or hippos or anything like that no uh, not not <laughs> where i was recovering bodies <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like an obvious question that I'm, if I didn't ask, somebody would have said, why didn't you ask about that? <laughs> amazing stuff, amazing stuff. Right, I'm going to go back to the, I'm going to go back to the slides and uh, let's talk a little bit about your bat-related work in the United Kingdom. So we're going to talk about uh, maybe some of the stuff surrounding some of these pictures and we're going to go on to also uh, talk or explore further uh, training, which has been a huge part of stuff uh, that you've done, uh, certainly in the United Kingdom. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit about your UK activities bat-wise, uh, things that kind of come to mind as being, um, well, being memorable, important, exciting, challenging, whatever, yeah? I was thinking about this yesterday to, to sort of try and see if I could get the dates, um, remember the dates. Um, I think my consultancy work began probably in about 1996. Um, I was asked if I would help with surveying the line of, of, of what became the Honiton Bypass. Um, the A303 Honiton Bypass, and which is in South Devon. Um, and I was asked by a, a, a small consultancy that was just starting called Ardiola um, if I would do the bat work on that. And in those days, it was holding a, a very, very, very simple um, bat detector walking around, no recording, nothing like that, identifying what you could hear. Um, and so that's where it started with me. Um, doing consultancy work. I think it was it was around 96, 97. It was that that area, that order of magnitude that I began. Um, I was also a 
what is now natural England, but was then NCC, um, yeah. looking when, when the 1981 Wildlife and Countryside Act came into being and bats were protected, um, they wanted people to go out as bat, as bat volunteers to um, go to householders who could be doing some harm to bats. And I began that work um, as a volunteer for what was then NCC, later became um, English Nature and then Natural England um, in York in 1984. So I became a volunteer bat warden in 1984, which was the year I returned from South Africa to um, the UK. Um, and I, I did voluntary bat work um, with householders from 1984 until I retired from that 30, 30 years later. Wow, um, okay. So I'd been doing that for a number of years. I only started to become paid um, doing survey work in for the Honiton Bypass in 1996 or thereabouts. Okay. <clears throat> and then thereafter, I joined um, a company called Halcrow Group Limited, who okay. were a big engineering company and, and who had um, projects all over the world. Uh, I joined them in 1999. Um, and worked out of Gloucester um, uh, doing ecological consultancy work, botanical, um, all sorts of things. But um, obviously my specialism, even that, even then was, was, was bats and bat survey work. But I was able to do um, botanical survey, bird survey, um, anything that was required of me because I already had that knowledge. I remember Halcro. They, they were still around when I started in consultancy in two thousand and six. Uh, yeah. So I, I know I know they don't exist. Uh, they, they got they merged or they got bought over. Uh, they were. I think it was C H two M Hill took them over. That sounds that sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah. 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 So after after Halcro, uh, do you want to talk? I mean, you then went on to work in other organisations as well, I believe. Um. um I was with Halcro. I think I probably left Halcro in 2003. Um, and I then joined what was then BSG Ecology. Yeah. Um, Baker Shepherd Gillespie, as it was then, became BSG Ecology later yeah. um, as their principal ecologist and was heavily involved in um, development work mainly to do with housing. My days of working for Halcro, however, I should just add, were mainly road schemes. I did a lot of road schemes in those days okay. to do with um, assessment, impact assessment of bats on road schemes. And then when I joined BSG, I think in 2004, um, I was mainly uh, working on housing developments and impact assessments of housing developments. Occasionally I did flood alleviation schemes that's when I first came across you. I mean, you probably won't recall this, but when you were at BSG, and it must have been around about 2006, 2007, yeah. uh, you were doing Anabat courses under the I BSG was indeed. banner. Yeah. And BSG, I don't know if they still have, but I think they used to have an office in Berwick-upon-Tweed on the Scottish borders. I Scottish think they still border. do. Yes, they, they do. do. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And you did an Anabat course. You've probably done many Anabat courses at that location, but you <laughs> quite did a lot. Anabat, 
Okay. Uh, so it was one of those Annabat courses at that location was say uh, the first time uh, that I that I physically uh, you know met you. Um, I was just a delegate on that course. I think it was maybe about 15, 20 people on that course, and I was one of those people. Um, so that was that was the first that time Ber I came Was that in Berwick? And that was you in, Berwick. in Berwick. Yeah. 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 I think yeah. I I mean I remember the course. Yeah. I can't say I exactly remember. There were quite a few people. I can't exactly Ab say I remember you on it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we, we didn't meet we didn't meet properly until a few years after that. Uh, you know, which uh, Well, I delivered some courses for you, didn't I? Up in Edinburgh area, Falkirk. Yeah, that's right. Well, three, Dumfries and Galloway and, and Edinburgh. Yeah, and Galloway. I, yeah, in the Edinburgh area. Uh, yourself and, uh, and Peter Shepherd uh, also did a, did one of your wind farm courses. In, uh, Indeed, yes. In, that was up in Scotland as well. So, yeah, we've done quite a few things uh, in the past which have been enjoyable. And, uh, yeah, and it's just always been fascinating. Uh, you know, seeing you uh, do what you do and all this. Um, anything here from the pictures that you want to pull up? I mean, is a lot of this to do with training related stuff? These all, pictures? Of, all, the, all the pictures that are here um, were pictures uh, taken by um, my joint venture colleague, Richard Crompton, because um, I left BSG in, two th in December 2007 um, and set up self-employed, mainly initially, um, doing um, uh, bat surveys for developments for people seeking licenses. Um, I had met Richard Crompton um, at a bat conference um, some years before. Oh no, sorry. I think, it, I think it may have been a bat conference in 2007 actually. And we had been talking about the problems of people getting personal licenses to survey for bats, yeah. um, and particularly in the commercial world. Um, and we thought what was lacking was a training course to enable people to get the knowledge experience, uh, hands-on experience for them to, um, to go for their licenses and to act as referees for their licenses. And Richard um, had said to me, and I have to say it was one drunken evening, why don't we get together and do something? Yeah. And I said, yeah, fine, okay, you know, as you do. Um, and it was a few months later, and I seem to remember it would have been something like April 2008. I had this phone call from Richard, and he said, you know what we talked about? Yes, I think I remember. He said, um, why don't we do something? And he at the time was over in Aberystwyth and I was over in Sirencester in Gloucestershire. And we put a pin in the, in the map and decided that Crickell was about halfway between the two. And he drove east and I drove west and we met in a, in a cafe in Crickell and discussed how it might start. Okay. And we delivered our very first ever um, week's worth of training um, in August of that year. And that's where it began. And I did 12 um, years of um, delivering those week-long uh, training courses. Um, and really it was the pandemic that um, kind of eventually brought it to an end. Um, and we did the very last one in, uh, in 2020. Okay. 
Yeah, and of course, Richard, uh, at the start of that journey, Richard was running his own ecological consultancy. At that he was point, out well. of Aberystwyth in those days, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, indeed. But she's, but she's and I was running mine, so we kind yeah. of eventually carried on running them, but then brought came together um, several times a year to deliver these training courses. Yeah. And also, yeah. one has to say that also in 2007, um, my husband Jerry and I, second husband, uh, we had bought a place in South Africa. Okay. And so I was then able to spend up to six months of the year in South Africa and six months of the year here. And we, we, we made sure that our, the training courses that we were delivering for, for UK bat workers were within the period that I was obviously here. But I also delivered training courses similar in South Africa as well while I was over there. Wow. And Richard wow. did actually come to one of those courses and delivered one three-day training course on um, surveying bats for wind turbines in South Africa with me. And I think that was 2012. Wow, wow. So, you know, the, the, the bat training partnership, I can't remember if that's what it was originally called or not. Yeah, bat training it, partnership. It was yeah, called, yeah. 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 Um, and under, under that banner, uh, a lot of people, of course, will know you because of those training courses that you did alongside yeah. Richard, but an awful lot of people will also know you for all of the Anna Bat, Anna Look related uh, training workshops, courses, you know, and all the associated stuff to do with those systems that, uh, that you used to do, because it was almost like you were just constantly touring uh, the British Isles. I was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, delivering these courses. And this was at a time when, uh, you know, the, the readily affordable and available technology that we have today in terms of full spectrum uh, machines, uh, that didn't really exist. No, no and, it was the beginning of it. Yeah, and what we had here were the original Anabat detectors, you know, like the SD1, and then I think it's an SD2 of that picture yeah. there. Uh, and there are various other uh, versions of those machines and the various add-ons. Uh, yeah, do, do you want to talk about that? Because you were, uh, despite all of the other things that you were doing, I think in many people's, in fact, probably in everybody's minds uh, back then, you know, you, you were the... I don't, I don't know how to describe you. You were like the, <laughs> yeah, you, were like the you were like the northwestern Europe uh, queen of Anabat and Analook. You know, you were you were the go-to person. Um, I did actually, I did actually deliver training courses in Portugal at one stage and in Ireland on the subject. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, go, go and talk about that because uh, okay. obviously the world has changed a lot since then. But I think it's really nice that people understand the context of where we are now and part of where we yeah, are now yeah. is to do with where we were then yeah yeah I should also say um, that from about the year 2001 I began to deliver training courses for the Bat Conservation Trust um, and some of those training courses I actually developed from scratch for them but the context of the Anabat side of it was in the delivery of those Back Conservation Trust training courses, I did become aware um, of the need for training um, in um, how to identify bats through, through sonograms. Yeah. So um, I, I think it would have been at a, 
Bat Conservation Trust annual conference. Um, Andrew McLeish, Andy McLeish, yeah. um, used to have a stand in which he would um, sell much of his equipment. Because he owned that, he owned Alana Ecology. He used Alana Ecology, exactly. That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was on one of these particular conferences that I saw the first Anabats that he had. And um, I wouldn't say I was a particularly highly technical person, but my husband is. And we bought um, an Anabat, an Anabat one. And um, I thought, how the heck do you use this? Anyway, Jerry. Which to be fair, that's what most people thought. When well, they yeah, quite, quite, <laughs> quite. Um, But I got Jerry on the case. Yeah. And um, what had been available from Australia um, as the manual for using it was very, very unintelligible to most ecologists with my kind of mindset. Yeah. And Jerry, who has an engineering mindset, said, well, I can do something about this. And at the time I was working for BSG Ecology. And um, he very cleverly developed two single sheets of paper on how to use and download the Anabat. Yeah. And he gave them to me and said, look, this is how you can do it quite simply and quite easily. Forget all the pages and pages of difficulty in these manuals. This is how to do it. And I began to use Anabats with BSG. Um, and Peter Shepherd said, I think it would be a good idea if you were able to train other people in using them. So armed with Jerry's two sheets of paper, I delivered the first of the training courses for BSG staff. And it kind of went on from there. It grew, as they say, grew like Topsy. Um, because Andy McLeish then asked me to deliver training courses um, at his offices for people who'd bought Anabats. Um, and the training courses were developed as I began to find out a lot more about them and how you could use them and how new um, Anabats came out uh, and new ways of looking um, at sonograms and how new ways of interpreting them. And I added on and added on and added on and yeah. did a variety at one stage. I think I was delivering three different kinds of Anabat training course. Um, I was mainly um, I was delivering them for, for Alana Ecology. I was delivering them independently for myself. Uh, by now I'd left BSG, but I delivered them for all sorts of individuals, for other consultancies. Um, I was very popular in being asked to go all over the country to deliver Anabat training courses to many other consultancies as well, including, as I've just said, um, I went across to, to, uh, to Portugal to one of the universities uh, near Porto. Um, and I also went across to consultancies in Ireland, uh, Western Ireland to deliver training courses too, as well as South Africa, actually, deliver training courses in South Africa on how to use Anabats. Yeah, no, amazing. And, and how course, to interpret sonograms. Yeah. yeah. And of course, this is where, uh, this is where we began to get together. I came up to you as well. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was, very very interesting uh, from that point of view uh, but just just put a bit of context here we've talked about and and the McLeish there and uh, Alana 
that's how that started. That's how that started. Yeah. But just, just for the sake of anybody listening to this, uh, uh, Alana was uh, bought over by NHBS, which everybody today would know yes. NHBS. Yep. Um, but uh, prior to that purchase, NHBS, the way that I remember it, were predominantly a natural history bookshop, hence the abbreviation NHBS, which stands natural for history natural bookshop, history bookshop. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe NHBS then wanted to venture more into selling um, detectors. detectors, equipment, mm. wider ecological equipment and stuff. Yeah. And Alana was pretty much the only company back then that did that. And somehow NHBS ended up acquiring Alana and Andrew then started working for NHBS for a short period of time. He's uh, not there anymore, but uh, but yeah, so that's the backdrop to that, folks. Um, <laughs> if you're wondering who's Alana Ecology and where did they go, um, uh, that, that's, that's my... Uh, that's my interpretation anyway. Or maybe get Andrew on a talking bat at some point in the future and he can he can give us the whole story behind that, uh, which I think would be quite fascinating. I hear he was either in or working out of Cape Town at one stage, although I never met him over there. Ah, okay. Right, well, he's definitely back in the UK now uh, because uh, I was speaking to him about five weeks ago. He phoned me up about <gasps> something. <laughs> so he's definitely, he's definitely around and he's definitely, he's definitely still involved uh, doing doing uh, ecologically, ecological related stuff. Okay, brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff. Uh, well, I just want to go back to the screen here. And uh, and just as you alluded to there earlier, you're no longer, I, I think Richard's still going to continue in some shape or form, and he still does bat-related uh, training and all the rest of it. But am I right in saying, are you now formally retired from doing bat training? Yes, I am formally retired. Okay. Um, and in fact, I had heard the other day looking at some various Facebook posts that many people who had been starting to do the kind of stuff that we did, um, training consultants for bat survey work, have really not been able to because of, of yeah. COVID. Um, but also we have been, uh, as, you, as you know, advised um, to avoid catching and handling bats um, for the fear that um, we might pass COVID on to bats um, and that it might develop into uh, a new mutation which could be um, very damaging to bats as well as people. Yeah, so yeah. I believe that has stopped an awful lot of... Um, that survey training that involves catching. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and certainly yeah, Richard has said he hasn't done any. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that is my, that's my understanding. And from the battability perspective, uh, we haven't done any, uh, any face to face training of that nature in the last couple of years. And I'm uh, currently reviewing what we're going to be doing in 2022, if indeed we're going to be doing anything. But, uh, I, think, I think it's going to be very difficult for consultants in the future yeah. um, to get the kind of, of training that we, were, we, you, I, and others were able to give um, with this uh, problem that has arisen through COVID. It's going to have to be very, very uh, tightly controlled, and 
and it's going to be different. And I think this is this is the thing that this is the thing that I personally struggle with, ignoring uh, the much bigger issue that you've described there about the risk of transfer. But face-to-face training is such a, oh God, yes. a personal thing. It's such a yeah. hands-on thing. Yeah. It's such a lot to do with how you interact with the, with the trainees, how the trainees interact with each other, how we all interact with the bats, if it's bats that we're catching. Yeah, and, exactly. And trying to do that with face masks or face oh, shields horrendous. and disinfected yeah, gloves horrendous. and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's, you know, it's going to be different, that's for sure. And I don't quite know... Uh, I mean, what's enjoyment got to do about it, I suppose, if you're the person delivering the training. But I think a lot of what somebody like myself and yourself and Richard, for example, a lot of the reason we do these things is because a big part of it is we actually enjoy passing on our knowledge to other people. Yeah. And, well, yeah, yeah that, that is true. I mean, we, we always used to say that having a group of people a group of eight people together for a week they learned as much from each other as they did from us as well yeah. Yeah. and it was that whole experience and ambience of being together at that time contributing their knowledge their experience for example we mentioned um peter kimberg he yes. had a huge yeah. amount to add in the training course the week long the two week long training courses that he did because he was coming at it from a different angle and you, you, unless you can have people together doing that, they're going to miss out an awful lot. And what worries me is the future for, for, for ecological consultants, if I'm honest, if they can't have that kind of experience, both practical hands-on experience, as well as coming together with other people who have completely different um, backgrounds and experiences, I mean, in a way, your kind of of replacing or hoping to replace that by the batability interviews you're doing. In a way, you're giving you're giving other consultants who are coming through your hands some of the knowledge um, from people like myself and others that you've interviewed. And we kind of used to do that within our bat license training courses because there were um, a group of people who came from very often very different backgrounds, but were all wanting to get their licenses to do the uh, the consultancy and survey work afterwards. Yeah, and so, to do it, yeah, and, and, and to do it at a good standard, having yeah, been at a high standard, at a high standard, yeah, a yeah. proper standard, not, yeah, not some sort of quick fix approach. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you and I have always sung from the same hymn sheet on this and quick fix is uh, and, and not the way to produce something which is long lasting or thorough. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, OK, I want to take us now on to Africa. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm missing South Africa at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and I know that you've worked in, I think you said you've worked, uh, you did some stuff in the Central African Republic, but you've done obviously a lot more in South Africa, and you've also ventured into Namibia, and we've got some pictures that are appearing now 
of uh, various things uh, that you've been involved with. But um, yeah, being, being involved in bats and going out and doing bat surveys and stuff like that in uh, the southern half of Africa, that's a little bit different to going out uh, and doing it in the southeast of England, I would imagine, uh, in lots of ways. I mean, obviously, the species assemblage is totally different, but, uh, you know, it's, I would imagine it's a lot warmer. Uh, the conditions are a lot more challenging. There are certain things you might have to think about that you wouldn't necessarily need to think about in the British Isles, albeit there'll be things you would have to think about in the British Isles that you wouldn't have to think about I don't know, uh, in the middle of nowhere in Namibia, for example. Um, give us give us your thoughts, your perspectives, your memories on some of the stuff you've been doing down there or you had done down there. Yeah. Well, the, the bottom left-hand picture yeah. um, is actually taken from when I was working not in Central African Republic, but just over the border. Um, you can see on the map DRC, yeah. just to the north of it, um, yeah. uh, you can see the word Cameroon between Cameroon and Central African Republic. Yeah. There is a what was the French Congo, okay. whereas DRC used to be the Belgian Congo. Um, okay. The French Congo is there. It's a small country um, and it has a. Um, uh, it's, it's quite it, it goes right over the, um, the equator. Um, I was asked a few years ago if I would help a, uh, a team from the States um, to do some research on fruit bats in relation to Ebola. Okay. And this was before, there's been a lot of Ebola outbreaks, but there'd been a lot of Ebola outbreaks at that point. And what had been discovered was an awful lot of fruit bats were being killed um, because they believed they all carried Ebola, even though there wasn't a thorough research showing that they were carriers for Ebola. So what I was asked to do, I was asked to go up um, to a reserve in the northern part of um, what used to be the, the French Congo. It's known as Congo B, Congo Brazzaville. Um, and I was going to go up there to catch fruit bats for to take um, samples from live fruit bats to see if they were carrying Ebola. So we were taking urine samples, we were taking blood samples. Okay. Um, yeah. And I was teaching uh, a team of vets on how to do that. So that was that bottom left-hand corner. Okay. Um, yeah. And I spent two to three weeks up there only, um, teaching the vets how to catch fruit bats in the rainforest of Nuabali and Doki National Park, right up in the north uh, of Congo. Okay, okay. The, just an aside here, there are two Congos. One's called Congo B, Congo Brazzaville, which is the old French Congo and speaks, a lot of French is spoken there. And the other is known as Cong, um, sometimes known as Congo K, Congo Kinshasa, or DRC. Okay, and that's okay. Belgian speaking. And, and I didn't. I wasn't working in Congo DRC. So you DRC. I was working what is known as the Republic of Congo. It's very confusing. Okay, <laughs> but yeah. Okay. So I was working up in the Congo, um, the French Congo, as it was. Okay. Um, the next picture in the the bottom middle of the screen um, is I was helping 
um, a PhD student uh, who is now Dr. Rachel Cooper Bohannon uh, with her work in Namibia. Um, and she was, uh, I was going with her, um, we were catching um, uh, cave dwelling microchiroptera um, and she was doing her research mainly based in Namibia. Okay. Yeah. Um, picture which is to the right, the furthest right, almost central, further up, further up, oh, there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have been working in a reserve in South Africa called Dehoor, which is in the Western Cape. And it's famous for its mountain, mountain zebra. It's one of the few reserves that, cont that contains population of mountain zebra. Um, and I was asked if I would do some training for the reserve staff um, on bats. And what we were walking towards in that picture is a sinkhole, okay. which that night we camped outside for a few hours just after um, at dusk. And we watched four, 5,000 um, horseshoe bats, rhinolophus, of wow. uh, three species leaving. Okay, okay. Um, and what, what I was doing then, because the reserve um, has a lot of visitors and they take visitors around during the day, showing them the, the larger mammal species there like eland, um, like um, mountain zebra, um, I suggested that they could um, take small numbers of tourists to watch the bats leaving the sinkholes. Yes. And what I was doing was we were, we were finding the sinkholes, going to them, and I was training the staff in Chiroptera of Dehoa um, and what they could talk to their tourists and visitors about. The reserve is also famous for a, um, a large roost of the endangered and very, very rare Cape vulture. And they take tourists to see the Cape vulture. So it was an added on thing. I was going there to train them so that they could bring that in um, into what they could offer small numbers of tourists like they take them to see the Cape vultures. So any of those horseshoe species, uh, are they any of the species we have in Europe represented down there? Uh, no, totally they're all different species. Different species, okay, okay. Uh, uh. The top picture, um, I have, I worked for about six or seven years. Um, I, can I, can I use my pointer? Does that uh, help? No, uh, I don't think okay. you can, but if you tell me where to point. Right. Uh, if you go to South Africa. Yeah. Um, can you see where Pretoria is? Uh, yes, uh -huh. yeah. If you go, can you see the green bit in north of Pretoria? If you go north of there, there, stop there. Yeah. Uh, maybe now come slightly to the right of there. Okay. About there. Okay. There's an area called the Waterberg. Okay. And there is um, a wilderness school there called the Lapalala Wilderness School. Um, and I have been teaching university students up at the Lapalala Wilderness School um, about South African bats. Um, and the top picture uh, with me, with, with back to the uh, camera with the hat on, is us going um, through the bush 
with students, um, showing them where bats are roosting and um, also looking at game. So I did that for a, about six or seven years. I would go up once a year and spend a week up there with university, mainly the University of Vendor students, but there were other university students as well. Wow. Wow. Fascinating there you go. stuff. Does that yeah. help? No, absolutely. That's uh, and what about this nice picture down here in the bottom right? Uh, this is you taking some time out, or uh, um, we were uh, looking for bats in in caves. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that was when I was with Rachel uh, Cooper okay. Hannon in Namibia. Yeah. We were squeezing into various holes, looking for um, and hoping we wouldn't. We wouldn't find a, a lurking a, a lurking leopard. Yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of thinking, and all of those. Have you got Have you got any kind of standout, challenging moments? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've got one or two. I can. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. When I was doing my PhD, um, at the time I was working up in the uh, northeastern part of of Natal, um, just south of um, Mozambique, in one of the reserves. I was catching fruit bats. Um, and I had nets up uh, and I was sitting in a vehicle waiting, this is obviously at, at night, um, checking from the vehicle whether any fruit bats had gone into the net. And um, I don't know whether you know much about hippo, but- I, I know uh, they come out of the water at night and the one that's that are right. Well, this okay. is what happened. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> often, if you're looking to put mist nets up, um, in places like game reserves, one of the best places to put them um, for the sake of the bats is on a hippo haul out. Yeah. Hippo <laughs> haul outs are often used um, by microchiroptera um, as a, a commuting route through. Okay. Um, and I had put inadvertently, I had put my nets across a hippo haul out. Um, and a hippo came out and uh, carried the net away, should we say? <laughs> Which was quite funny at the time. But, but <laughs> well, it wasn't funny at the time. It became funny after. Lost my nets. Lost one of my nets. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, we've had a few instances with rhino. Um, Jerry and I were working up in Lapalana Wilderness area, um, and we had nets up to catch bats by the side of a, of a large dam. And we were camping um, and you tend to keep a fire on if you're up all night because of, of the species that, that were around us um, to keep them away from you. And um, I can remember Jerry going, um, there's something coming over there. <laughs> there was a black rhino sitting for the net. <laughs> we lost a net to that as well. <laughs> So yes, we have um, encountered some interesting situations of catching uh, catching bats in reserves in Southern Africa, as well as up in uh, um, the French Congo, Republic of Congo. Yeah. Amazing stuff, amazing stuff. I mean, I mean bat work is challenging enough, isn't it, without rhinos and hippos and... Um... Well, catching, catching bats in the Republic of Congo in yeah. Nuobali and Doka National Park, um, we bought one of these... Um, Arborists use them for getting um, a rope up into the very tops of trees. It's like a catapult. It's a yeah. huge, huge, huge catapult. gigantic catapult. And um, because we were wanting to put nets up at something like 20 to 30 meters up in the sky, or 20 meters at least up, we had to use one of these giant catapults. 
um, and I couldn't pull the thing back. So I had to have somebody else to do it. But we did. We got our nets up right up and up and managed to catch um, in the rainforest because of using these catapults. Yeah. yeah. Wow, wow. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. OK, so let's talk about some non-bat stuff now, <laughs> sort of, right? Because I know uh, I, I stayed with you once uh, overnight uh, down in your uh, house in Gloucestershire, I think it was, is it? Gloucestershire. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. And, uh, and we were driving around, and I remember these B roads that were heavily hedged, uh, barely room for a single vehicle to go down. This is how I remember it. But obviously, you could get two vehicles passing. And you and you just announced uh, in the car that uh, quite often you drove uh, cart horses around. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> you know, does what, what happens if a car comes flying around the corner or whatever? But anyway, I know this is something that you're heavily uh, involved with, that you like to do on a regular basis. Uh, and then we've got the cruise ships, the tours, and kayaking. So these are things that I know that you're uh, very, very interested in uh, and do a lot. Well, of having now retired, I yeah. am doing um, much more of the kayaking and also much more of the trap driving. Um, Jerry and I, I now have a half share in a in a cob, in a Welsh cob, uh, a stallion that okay. we're bringing on for driving. Um, the, the picture there is of a, of a mare called Blackberry um, that I drove for about 10 years um, and who has now gone on to another lady um, who is now driving her. And we have three horses of which uh, two are our drivers and drive traps. Um, and we drive nearly every day. And we do drive in very narrow wooded lanes. You're quite right. Um, the new horse we have is called George. He's a Welsh Section C uh, stallion. He's um, nearly five years old. Um, and we've just been asked if we will um, start to use him for weddings. So um, it still remains to be seen whether he will be uh, suitable. But so far, I, um, um, he's showing uh, a lot of promise. So, so, so this, this is all to do. We, we right, this is all to do with the temperament of the horse. And yes, stuff. it is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And and you know that you can't have something that's um, uh, unpredictable if you've got a um, a bride in a beautiful white gown <laughs> sitting there getting either splashed or or run away with. <laughs> but yes, no. We um, he's looking. It's looking very promising. Um, and with the beginning of, of lockdowns, we still had to go and, and feed our, our horses. Um, and Jerry became interested um, because being mechanically minded, um, he became fascinated by the vehicles we have. That We have two, two traps, a four-wheeler, and that's our two-wheeler. Um, and Jerry's taken over the maintenance of the, uh, of the traps. Um, so we go up there with our, our training, our colleague, who's been, uh, I've been... Um, He's been my mentor for for, two, for 10 years this year um, and he drives. He's the he's the main person who's taught me to drive all these years. So the three of us go up every day and the horses are are taken out and driven. Wow. wow. Right. Moving on to moving on to big boats, because uh, uh, right. 2001 uh, yeah. it started. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. Not to, no, I don't mean to. No, not 2001. It was 2010. 
Um, I took on, or I was taken on by an agent um, that was called um, Cruise PR. And what they were looking for were people who could lecture on cruise ships. And I'd met somebody uh, on a cruise ship in 2009 in Antarctica um, who was a lecturer on that particular um, cruise. And I said, oh, I fancy, I could, I'd like to do something like this. I think I could do something like that. And he gave me um, an introduction to Cruise PR um, and I joined their team. Um, which was later taken over by a company called Peel Talent. Um, Peel Talent are now my agent. And essentially various cruise companies will um, contact Peel Talent and say they're looking for lecturers and they will say the dates and the ship and the destinations of the, of the cruise. Uh, and they'll say they particularly want a natural history lecturer. So I do natural history talks um, and I did my first one in, two, in 2010, and I've done one most years, if not twice a year since, apart from the last, obviously, two years yeah, uh, yeah. with the COVID pandemic. Um, the last one I did was in January 2019, um, when I was sailing across from Southampton to Rio um, and mainly delivering talks on uh, on sea days, so when they're not at port, there'll be a lot, a lot of sea days if you're going from Southampton. Well, they can be sometimes <laughs> if you're crossing the Atlantic, it can be up to six sea days. <laughs> but the kind of talks I give are things like eels of the Sargasso Sea, um, um, sea turtles of the Pacific. Um, okay. I can give talks, obviously, on bats, and I modify the talks on bats, the wonderful world of bats, to um, incorporate the destinations that we are heading for so yeah. whether it's the caribbean bats or it's southern african bats or it's european bats i will incorporate um i will incorporate that i've got a talk uh, a cruise coming up in may in which one of my talks will be um bats which uh, are in norway for example okay. Norwegian okay. Bats. so i've been doing that for um since 2010 and i've got two coming up this year possibly three so okay so this is, this is the questions that uh, come to most people's minds when they hear somebody talking about this i take it you get a free cruise out of this is that I, yes you get yeah. a free i don't get paid you i get, get a free paid. cruise for me and my okay. husband okay uh, and all transport included uh yeah you get um you've got to get yourself to the to the ship Ah, okay, um, okay. And if you are traveling from, for example, many of the ships that I, I board are on a Southampton. So that's. But that's, they that's, may that's, drop me in somewhere like Rio, or they may drop me somewhere like the Caribbean, or or okay. Sydney, or Brisbane, or somewhere, and then they fly you back. They that's incorporated. They fly you back from wherever you've been dropped. Wow, uh, it's, it's hard work, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> So we, it's, it's about um, uh, a 45, 50 minute lecture, um, yeah. which can involve 10 minutes of questions at the end. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Okay. And, uh, and to stay on the water, uh, kayaking. This was something I didn't know about uh, until, uh -huh. uh, until you sent me the photograph 
about this uh, last month or whenever it was, and going kayaking. I've, I've never never heard Sandy talk about kayaking before, but you're you're quite big into this, and I believe this is part of the reason why you're in Devon as well. Yes, so indeed. Yeah, you're going to talk a little bit about this. Yeah. Well, I should say I've kayaked since I was at university, so it's a it's a very 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 long time, um, and. I suppose it's latterly um, we had kayak, we had a kayak, a double kayak in South Africa and would go on kayaking holidays when we were in the Western Cape. So we would put the kayak on the car um, and basically kayak, never marine kayaking. We would kayak up sea, on sea lagoons um, and travel all over kayaking on rivers and sea lagoons because they're wonderful things for bird watching. Um, many's the time Jerry and I have kayaked on a on a river or in a lagoon and you are kayaking amongst flamingos and they're all around you because they can stand in water that the kayak can go onto. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because it's a very shallow draft. Yeah. Um, we did one holiday um, in which Jerry and I, a whole week's holiday, which was organized um, by a, a kayaking company in which we started at Loch Boysdale in the Outer Hebrides yes, and uh, okay. kayaked all the way up the coast, um, all the way up to just south of um, North West. Loch Maddy. We went. We went past Loch Maddy. I I uh, actually um, okay. capsized okay. <laughs> with my kayak um, as we were travelling across Loch Maddy uh, okay. in front of a Calmac ferry. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I, well, I, I've been on a Calmac ferry going into Loch Maddy quite a few times. Uh, in, well, in I, I, I yeah. actually capsized in front of a Calmac ferry. Oh, no, oh, no. It was that's... very, very scary. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So when you go north of Loch Maddy, uh, there, there is another town. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but that's where there's a ferry that goes from North Uist to Harris. Yes, uh, but, and that's probably the place that you're. You kind of we didn't get to Harris. We went to nearly yeah. to Harris, but yeah, we yeah. we were we were carrying all our stuff with us. So yeah. we camped every night and cooked every night, and then carried on to the next place, the next place. So it was right the way up. So we did that one year. But yeah. here we have a double kayak uh, here, and yeah. we tend. This is here being in Sulcombe uh, yeah. or near Sulcombe, and we tend to kayak on on the. Um, on the rivers, the tidal rivers, which are tremendous. The River Dart, the Kingsbridge Estuary, the River Avon, which is a small river down here. Um, and the River Yelm and the River Erm are our favorite playgrounds for watching birds as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is amazing. I, I think it's probably a little bit like being, I'm thinking about it from the wildlife's perspective, because I've noticed oh, a quite... few, yeah, yeah, when I've been in a small boat, uh, which I've done quite a few times, uh, birding and other stuff um that the animals don't seem to recognize you or feel threatened by you when you're that's on a boat. exactly right in the same way that and you'll know this much better than i do but if you're in a vehicle on safari somewhere in africa and you're in the vehicle even if it's a completely open vehicle that the animals don't seem to associate you as being as much of a threat or threat, no. but yep. but you step outside of that vehicle yeah and exactly. uh, all of a sudden you become very different you, 
you become food yeah. <laughs> or, 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 food, or else you're a predator or a predator yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well it's the same with kayaking um yeah. i think one stage jerry would paint our paddles black so there was no flashing white okay okay um and we found we could get very close to a lot of birds because you can just close your paddle pull your paddle in and sit and and, and wait yeah. and drift yeah. and it's yeah it's, it's very good it's excellent <laughs> amazing stuff amazing stuff yeah and so we're getting almost to the end now and uh, for many of the people that come on to Talking Bat uh, we offer to make a charitable donation on their behalf as a small thank you for their, for their time and this is something that we're really pleased to do today uh, on behalf of Sandy and Sandy, you've chosen Bats Without Borders uh, for your charitable. By the way, can donation. I just comment that the picture you have is of um It's an epileted fruit bat, is it? Yeah. It looks like um an epileted fruit bat. Um judging from it's certainly an epimophorus is a picture you have there. So that is pretty much the the genus at least of the of the um the bat that i was working on for my phd yeah because they've got these am i right in saying one of the characteristics is this white uh, the white ear tufts yeah but yeah, the, male, the, the males have inverted uh, pouches on their shoulders and when the males are calling during breeding season they evert the pouches and they look like pulsing white flowers I've seen that. I've seen that. I haven't seen that live, but I've seen I've seen pictures, videos of that. Excellent. Yeah. So that's a bit of a, that's a nice coincidence. So you were you were off, you were previously involved as on the advisory board of Bats Without Borders. Yes. Uh, so it's it's fitting that uh, we make a donation on your behalf. Uh, and of course, um, uh, Rachel is South African. Uh, and that's how we got together. She was working for BSG um, initially, and we got together because of her connection um, with South Africa. Um, yeah. She and I worked together at BSG. Um, and then some years later, she founded Bats Without Borders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And asked Hi. me if I would become involved because of, of my um, uh, contacts and past experience and work there. Yeah. Yeah, and we actually we actually interviewed Rachel for talking about oh goodness probably about a year ago. I lose track on time, uh, but if anybody's watching this and you want to find out more about Bats Without Borders or Rachel, uh, check the back the back catalogue of Talking Bat, uh, and you'll find an interview with uh, Rachel uh, some point in two thousand and twenty-one. I can't remember exactly when. Uh, but it's, it's really nice how all these things are beginning to tie together. I mean, you've Richard Crompton as well. Yeah, Richard Crompton. Yeah, we've interviewed Richard Crompton. Uh, you mentioned Paul Racy. Uh, we did a talking back with him. You mentioned uh, Peter Kimberg. Peter Kimberg did a Be Your Guest session uh, on eDNA uh, yes, analysis. Uh, he did something on behalf of a company that he works for now, uh, yeah. probably about five, six months ago. And, and it's just really nice as we're talking to all of you wonderful people, um, how, how things begin to kind of thread together, you know, it's, uh, yeah, which, is, which is very, very I'm nice. hoping you'll also talk to Bob Stebbings, because uh, um, we haven't, Bob Stebbings uh, was, we was haven't as such yet. Been able to get hold of him. Uh, yeah, uh, I've 
put feelers out for an email contact forum, but so far I, oh. I have I have failed. Uh, and he's someone that I have never met. Uh, I've I've seen him deliver a presentation once, but apart from that, uh, he's not someone. It's not someone that at any point in the last kind of 25, 30 years that I've, I've ever directly spoken to. Um, but uh, I would be amazing. It would be amazing to get uh, Bob Stebbings on here. Well, for me, so, he certainly is the father of, um, of, yeah. of, of British bat ecology, for me. Yeah. And I actually flew from South Africa in 1979 to meet him and Paul Racy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and of because course before of, of, of what they were doing. Yeah, and I seem to remember my earliest days in bats before we had the National Bat Monitoring Program. Uh, did a lot of the bat records used to go to the Bob Step the Bob Stebbings Foundation or something like that? I uh, think they did. Well, he was certainly involved in the early days. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I seem to remember the first couple of years, uh, or. That, that was just finishing as the National Bat Monitoring Program. Program came in with BC, BCT, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so... Uh, yeah, it would be I'll, nice, uh, it would be a nice link for you to be able to interview him because for many, 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 many of us, he was the beginnings of it all. Well, I'm going I'm to keep trying. I'm going to put more feelers out. Uh, I've approached uh, three or four people so far. And to be fair, Sandy, it was you that originally... Uh, suggested it and you give me a couple of people to approach and uh, the people I've approached uh, so far they were only able to give me what was previously his business email address which uh, well I, yeah, so yeah when he was yeah. he had the consultancy yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but uh, I'll keep trying and if anybody's watching this <laughs> if you've got if you've got Bob Stebbing's telephone number or email address, send it to me, uh, and we will we will we will certainly ask. So, what does the what does the future hold, Sandy? Um, <laughs> more more horse trapping, more kayaking, more trips well, abroad. Cer certainly, yeah. trap trap driving and kayaking. Yeah. I, I'm I'm doing. Um, I'm going back now, hopefully, into cruise lecturing again. Um, and I will continue to introduce bats to a, a wider public on cruise ships. Yeah. But you, you do have to remember that when you're delivering talks on cruise ships, um, it is a little bit strange because unlike delivering, um, shall we say training courses where you have a captive audience, you have no captive audience. Um, the night before um, I give my talks, well, every, every night um, guests on ships are Set, are pushed under their door a program of, of things that are happening the next day and one of them will be the talks that are being given and so you have to find things that will catch their imagination and they'll say oh well I won't I won't go to knitting I'll come and watch Sandy give her talk on yeah. the wonderful world of bats yeah and you're gonna have such and for me uh, it would be a it would be my it would be a, it would be a nightmare for me because not that I could do that anyway, but, but what I mean is um, doing the kind of training that you would have done uh, professionally in the ecological sector and what I'm still doing, you kind of know what your audience is like, albeit yeah, all yeah. the different personalities. But Nothing. you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but you, and you know could be you asked get... all sorts of questions. Yeah, yeah. And 
and you're going to have children possibly there. You're going to have everything from, you know, small children through to, uh, you know, the right people from, who fall asleep. Yeah, the people that fall asleep, <laughs> uh, and people that come in halfway. I would imagine yeah. people that leave halfway. Yeah, yeah, uh, all of and, it. <laughs> and at the start, you don't know if you're going to have anybody, three people or 103 people, I would imagine. <laughs> it's, you know, uh, too many uncontrollables there. For oh, it's very, very with. uncontrollable. <laughs> Neil, I can promise you that. <laughs> apart from apart from what I what I usually say to them. <laughs> but you can get you can get people who have huge amounts of knowledge. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. could be sitting in the audience. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's the thing. You, you could be sitting there giving a lecture, especially in some of these cruises, uh, where, you know, you know, some pretty high stature, knowledgeable people that can yeah. afford yeah. to go on holidays like that could be an, could be an audience. Can I, yeah. can I yeah. um, just finish with a little anecdote relevant yeah, it, yeah. to what you've yeah. just said? Um, the last cruise I was on, um, I had incorporated as one of my talks um, a, t a talk about my experience in um, the Republic of Congo catching bats for purposes of testing them for Ebola. And that was going to be my was going to be my last lecture of the cruise. And guests had had the, the notification on the programme that I was giving that cruise that next day. And this lady approached me um, on the deck and said that she had been working in, um, camera, uh, in Gabon uh, with Ebola patients. And she was one of the she'd been working with Medicine Sans Frontier, I think it was. And I said, wow, would you be prepared to help me at the question time for my lecture tomorrow? And she said, really, would you like me to? And I said, yes. I said, because people are going to ask questions about Ebola, which myself not being medical can't answer in that way. Yeah. So um, will you stand up with me at the end and field whatever questions are asked, I'll do the, the bat side of things if you do the medical Ebola side of things. And she said, I would love to do that. And so the last lecture I ever gave on a cruise ship, which was 2019, um, she stood up with me and we fielded all the questions and she was marvelous talking about um, nursing Ebola patients, uh, the whole thing, it was fascinating and it worked beautifully at the end. <laughs> And, you know, for, for that person, that was quite possibly uh, just like a major thing for her to be doing. You know, that would have been something that would have been quite different. Well, she she was surprised when I asked her. So yeah. it probably was. Yeah. 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 Amazing stuff. Amazing <laughs> stuff. Right. I think we're going to end it there. Um, Sandy, that has been absolutely amazing. As I knew it can would I, be. Can I say uh, thank you for a very enjoyable experience? Well, yeah, thank it was you. lovely. Really we hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is an edited, audio-only version of the original videoed session. The full version, including video, is available via Betability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to betability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you. Mm -hmm.